Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the Weird One Podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like Weird One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything Weird One, you can go to weareoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. Coming in hot off of his time in Athens, Paul hanging out with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I don't even think I'd want to hang out with those guys or deal with that, but Paul decided to take his mind to another level, deal with these guys. Then there's the altar dedicated to an unknown God. Acts 17, it's a, it's a crazy chapter. While he's there in Athens, he's in Berea, Thessalonica, all that stuff as he's traveling there through Macedonia and Greece. I want to break down like all the location here in a second where he was, but you can learn more about that in the description. I got all the teachings, the message extensions, all of that for Acts 17. But what I want to do is travel from there 48 miles west to Corinth, because that's what we got to talk about today. He establishes a church there in Corinth, writes Two influential letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, that today is still rocking our world. And all that we had to go off of in the book of Acts, so we got to definitely get outside of Acts a little bit to get the full scope here, but all that we have to go off of is Acts 18. Acts 18. The uh, Not today's not the 18th, but it's Acts 18. That's all we have to go off of to really learn about this church here in Corinth. And all of the chapter is not even about Corinth. But we have a little glimpse that Luke gave us leaning into Acts 18. This extension, just like uh, the other two extensions of its kind, there's only been four total extensions like this of its kind, meaning what I say by that is standalone extensions where there's no other messages connected to them because typically there's a sermon preached and then there's an extension because it's called an extension, extension of that sermon. But these two, just like All Nighter and A Kingdom of Tears, that they are standalone extensions, those two, All Nighter and Kingdom of Tears, those made up Acts 20. This one I'm going to give you right now is part one of two that is going to make up Acts 18. And as we're looking at this, Paul, as I talked about, he's transitioning from Athens in Acts 17 here to Acts 18 in Corinth. And so this extension, along with the other one, is going to be sandwiched in between the message unknown God and the extension following Jesus that are in the description. That's all Acts 17 and then Acts 19, right? Souls and scrolls and the extension, a beautiful beginning. That's Acts 19. So everything we're about to talk about right now is sandwiched in between all of those teachings in Acts 17 and 19. Here's verse one, and we're going to unpack so much here. I'm going to give you verse one, and I got just kind of get you uh, geographically here to Corinth here in a second with the map. And then we'll lean into some more details. Verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth. It says, after this. What's this? After this. It says, uh, you know, this word, after this. One word, this, I think many times we can just read the Bible. After this. After what? That's why you got to read what takes place before you get here, because it's saying a bunch of stuff happened before you even got here. If you follow it, even the journey like on a map, in Acts 17, it outlines how Paul passes through Amphipolis, Apollonia. He comes then to Thessalonica, then Berea, that's all in Macedonia. And then Acts 18.1 says that he then goes from Athens. He leaves Athens and comes to Corinth. All of this region that you see that we were just traveling on the map, it's referred to this lower half, right? Uh, or we would usually say the lower half, uh, which is what I want to break down as we're talking about it, as Greece. But what I want you to understand, that that entire region, 
right? It's a Roman, like, colonized area. It's all referred to as Greece. Greece, though, is broken down into two provinces. And man, why do they make it so confusing the way we read this? And that's what I want to help you understand. It's two provinces. The upper, we've known a lot in Scripture, known as Macedonia. The lower is referred to as Achaia. Both of them, Macedonia and Achaia, make up Greece. Corinth, which is where we're going to be for a while, and exclusively in this extension will be in Corinth, that is the capital city of Achaia. This is where it becomes confusing. Let me break it down a little bit. Luke, in this case, when we're referring to Acts 18, uses this word a number of times here, Achaia. We're in the province of Achaia is what we're going to be talking about here in Corinth. But other times, he says Greece. Here's where it's confusing. When he says Greece, he actually again means Achaia. So if you look in Acts chapter 20, let me give you just two verses here, verses 1 and 2. It says, that when the uproar had ended, right there, even alone, if you don't read Acts 19, you don't even know what he's referring to in Acts 20. They're all connected, right? So in Acts 19, there's this crazy uproar. There's this mob, this riot. Paul leaves Ephesus. Acts 20, when it had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Okay, that's where, let's break that down. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece. Let's, okay, let's break these down. Greece, in this case, he actually is arriving at Corinth, is what the Bible is saying. But not even just Corinth, it was Achaia, that was a province, a part of Greece, and Corinth, the capital city of Achaia. Are you following me? But here's where it's confusing. He says that they, they set out for Macedonia, and then they arrived at Greece. What he's meaning is they went from Macedonia, the upper province, and then traveled down into Achaia, the lower province of Greece. But he doesn't say that. He says Macedonia and Greece. But what he's meaning is Macedonia to Achaia or traveling through Macedonia, which means like he's going Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And then he comes down into Achaia or he calls it Greece in this case and this verse in Acts 20. But he's really meaning that he comes to Corinth. Whew. Do you understand? So that's just verse 1, which after this, that I think we need to understand. So Acts 18.1, it's referring to how it comes from Athens to Corinth, referring to this province of Achaia, one of two provinces that make up Greece at this time in history. Corinth is where we're going to stay, like I said, for a bit here, and I just want to give you kind of an introduction into it with that. But now let's start breaking down in the next two extensions some of like the the characters that are introduced historically at this time. Verse 2, there he, meaning Paul, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they, they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. No matter what city he's in, no matter what he's going through, no matter what's going down, he's always going to go to the synagogue and he's going to preach every time. <laughs> if you track any of Acts, he ain't going to be there very long. He's about to get kicked out. He's about to tick some people off. But always, it's like his reset point in every city if they have one. He's going to come preach in that city at their synagogue. That's where he's always going to start. As you're going to find out, he's not going to be there for very long here in Corinth either. But before we head there, 
before we get into that whole storyline of Acts 18. I want to first just break down what we just read here in verses um, 2 to 3 especially, right? There's this introduction, which I'm just going to begin to just quickly touch on now in this next extension that pairs now here in Acts 18 with this one as well. I'm going to really break down Aquila and Priscilla, but just very quickly, let's just understand this about them. They're introduced here just at the very beginning here in verse 2 of Acts 18. These are Paul's good friends, but they didn't just become great friends of Paul. They became a dynamic duo on his team that really helped advance the gospel. That's what we're going to talk about in the next extension, but they're really incredible. Here's what I'll give you. Aquila, the husband, Priscilla is the wife. So Aquila, the husband, says that he here is a native of Pontius. Man, I love how God works. Right. What does that even mean? A native of Pontius. Why is that even important? It's important because we have to understand if you look on the map here, you'll notice that Pontius is a region located on the southern coast of the Black Sea, as you can see here near the top of the map. That would mean that we're in northern Asia Minor. Where is this? Why does it matter? It is right next to Bithynia. You see here on the map, it shows how Bithynia and Pontius, they're right located next to each other in that entire region of Asia Minor. Why does that matter? You remember Acts 16, famous moment in verse 7, where Paul is pressing and he wants to go to Bithynia. It says that when they came to the border of My Mycia, he's like, let's go, let's go, let's go. They tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. What I find amazing about this whole thought of meeting Aquila, who was a native of Pontius, is that although he was trying to go to Bithynia, where, which is right next to Pontius, and it says here in Acts 16, he was trying to go there earlier, but the spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow him to, the gospel still spread to that region. How do we know? Because Aquila, a native of Pontius, which is right there in the region with Bithynia, he comes to know Jesus. Not only comes to know Jesus, Paul gets to meet somebody here now in Corinth, which is not even anywhere close to Pontius. We're talking all the way down in Achaia is Corinth, right? And they meet each other, and he's like, whoa, shoot, that's right next to Bithynia, Acts 16. I wanted to go. Spirit of Jesus won't let me go, but I get to meet you now. We're hanging out. We can do ministry together. This is going to be tight, right? I think it's so cool how the Lord works that although Paul so badly wanted to go there, he wasn't able to. But that doesn't mean that the, the Spirit of God and the Word of God would end up going there, and even people then would come meet him from that region. That's just number one. We're going to talk way more about Quill and Priscilla in this next extension, though. Number two, because the Holy Spirit is always orchestrating things, right? They meet each other. But I know it's not just because of the Holy Spirit orchestrating it. Why else did they cross path? I know it's always the Holy Spirit, but let's just talk practically. Why did Aquila and Priscilla cross paths with Paul? This is important to understand. It says here in verse 2, it details it a little bit for us, and it says that they came there in Corinth as essentially refugees. They were fleeing from Emperor Claudius as now refugees there in Corinth because they've been kicked out of Rome. And if you break this down here, Claudius, he reigned as emperor between 41 and 54 AD. Okay, so this makes sense. Paul comes to Corinth in 51 AD. So sometime right before that, we know if Claudius reigned between, between 41 and 54, that means so somewhere in 41 to you know, somewhere in this ballpark, 51, closer to 51 AD, that's when they would have been kicked out, exiled, and 
as always is, right? The Jews are always, even today in this generation, are a targeted people. So at first, Emperor Claudius doesn't have any problem. Hey, you just practice your religion and be good with it. But then they continued to grow in number. And he did not like them growing in number. So in racist rage, he kicks them out. He's like, y'all got to go. Y'all got to get out of it. They're out of this area. They're exiled from Rome because he feared that they would organize and they would revolt against them. Why does history just seem to always repeat itself? Why can you just find the same things happening all the time in history? Do you remember this? You ever heard something like this before? Maybe uh, in the Old Testament as well, book of Exodus chapter one. Look at verse eight to 13. Then a new king, this is the Pharaoh of that time, to whom Joseph meant nothing. So Joseph was the number two in Egypt in the book of Genesis at the time. But then now, all of that storyline's done. There's a new pharaoh. Joseph means nothing. This new pharaoh comes to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites, the Jews, have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join other armies. They're fearful, just like Emperor Claudius was now in the book of Acts, and they're going to fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, <laughs> the more they multiplied and spread. Like, you can't keep a good man down kind of thing, you know? So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. History always repeats itself. This is the same story, whether it's Exodus 1 or now it's Acts 18 being referred to. The same exact thing is happening. What did God say? Genesis chapter 1. What did he tell his people? Be fruitful and multiply. What do you think happened? They became fruitful and they multiplied. It freaked out Pharaoh. It now freaked out, in this case, Emperor Claudius. Sometime between 51 AD, before Paul gets there, they're exiled. They come here now to Corinth, and that's why Paul meets them. The same storyline on repeat throughout history. Even today, the people of God, the chosen people, the Jews, the same type of oppression is happening today. They're always a targeted people. History repeats itself. That's number two. Number three, the third detail that I want you to catch here is given in verse Three, and it's small, but I just think it's something for us to catch here, Paul's profession. We don't know exactly where he learned the trade, but it's very clear here he's a tent maker by trade. It's what he does to pay the bills here in Corinth. Now, although his mission was to preach the gospel, and obviously he's given himself primarily to seeing people won and saved and preaching and all that kind of stuff, building the church there in Corinth, we can also see here by what he told the church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, how he was very devoted to the work he did. In this case, it was tent making. What does he say? He says, For even when we were with you to the, 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 the Thessalonians, we gave you this rule. What's the rule? The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Yeah, I've always heard paraphrase, right? You don't work, you don't eat. That's simple. Paul was a hard worker. In Corinth, he had to pay the bills. So he was making tents. We can even see then two chapters later in the book of Acts, and you know, Acts chapter 20, he's alluding to this kind of hard work again, and that in this case, it's in 18, it's necessary to make tents. When he's in another place, he's going to do whatever's necessary to provide for the needs. And look at what it says in verse 34 he's, uh, of Acts 20. He says, you yourselves know that these hands of mine 
have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. So he's like, whether I'm making tents or I'm doing something else, I'm going I'm to use my hands. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to like put my hands to the plow because I know if I don't work, I can't pay the bills. If I don't work, I can't eat. If I don't work, I can't supply the needs. He's like, I'm not out here just like preaching, preaching, preaching on the side of the street, like, whoa, 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 come to Jesus. And then hopefully like manna from heaven shows up. Possibly. If the Lord wanted to perform that kind of miracle, he could. But Paul understood the practicality of ministry. You got to work hard, not only to see people to come to Jesus, you got to work hard to also provide for your needs as well. So while in Corinth, his ability to truly focus on ministry, truly focus on preaching, we don't see that come to pass till verse five. Why does that happen? Look at Acts 18, verse five. He's about ready to preach now because of this. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, remember that's the upper province of all of Greece there. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. He's like, okay, now I'm ready to preach. Testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Why? Why is he able to preach? So Silas and Timothy show up, and now he can fully devote himself. Why? Is he like, hey, you guys build the tents now. I'm done doing this. Let me preach. Like, you do the hard work. Let me go preach. Preaching is hard work, by the way. But, like, I think some people could be like, well, that ain't real work. Like, real work would be, like, making tents. So what? What? what is the thought process? Like, what? That Paul's going to go preach now, and they're going to go just do the, the tent making, working with the hands? No, not at all. According to what Paul writes five years later, he finally tells us in 2 Corinthians what he meant by this. Look at chapter 11, verse 8 to 9. He writes this to the church there at Corinth later as he's talking about what had happened in chapter 18, but he's writing back later, five years later. He said, I robbed other churches. Whoa, robbed? No, slow down. Let's break it down. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. Because he's writing to the church at Corinth. He's like, listen, other churches were giving faithfully. By robbed, he meant, he meant like, I had to take money from them, meaning they gave to me so I could serve you, you Corinthians, is what he's saying here, to this church here in this Achaia region. And I was with you, and when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers, who are the brothers? Silas and Timothy, he's referring to, who came from Macedonia. So that's how we put together Acts 18, 5, and now in 2 Corinthians 11. They came from Macedonia and they supplied what I needed. So what's the point? He's not putting Silas and Timothy to work making tents so he can preach. He's able to now fully devote himself to preaching because between verse 5 of Acts 18 and 2 Corinthians, it's put together now explaining that they brought a financial gift from multiple churches in the Macedonia region so that he could preach full time. Think about how much ground Paul can take now that he can fully devote himself to preaching. Just building teams, building the church, discipling, preaching, going to and fro, making sure Jesus is known. He's not stuck in one place doing this anymore. He is now fully devoting to his calling to make Jesus known. Remember, Jesus, Acts 9, said, you're my chosen instrument, and that's what he's doing. And so Silas and Timothy, they show up with this gift financially, so he can devote. Can I just tell you, this is why it's important to faithfully give to the storehouse of God. We see that as a principle in the Old Testament. Now we see it coming to pass even in the New Testament that ministers, they can fully devote themselves. Now I'm not saying, listen, that ministers, like uh, I think many times we see in this generation, right, they making money off royalties and books and all these things. No, I'm talking about old fashioned, just tithing to your local church so that people can stay faithful, right? Called people, pastors and people that are called full-time team members to be on a church staff so they can be paid 
so they can 100% devote themselves to the work of God. There's just something about that. Staying faithful to that so that people like Paul, people like me, other people that are just being faithful to their calling can do it so they can reach people like you that are possibly watching this or just faithful on a Sunday or faithful to ministry works. The amount of now in this generation, text, DMs, phone calls, things we get. There's so many ways to reach us so that we can be all about ministering to the flock of a local church. There's something about being faithful and giving. You can see it right here in Acts 18. So Silas and Timothy, they not only arrived with a financial gift for Paul from the churches, but they arrived with even something better, a good report. They're like, hey, Paul, we got to tell you about what's happening. Right there in Thessalonica, the church, man, it's doing well, Paul. Like, it's so exciting. It's doing well. And remember in Acts 17, when Paul was traveling, he moves from Thessalonica, then to Berea, to Athens, and he begins ministering. Silas and Timothy, though, they were sent back to Thessalonica to keep developing the church there because initially they got driven out really quick. Remember uh, in Acts 17, the Jews get ticked off. They're searching for Paul and Silas. They go to this guy's house named Jason. They can't find him anymore. And I love, it says in Acts 17, 6, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, I love how the church is identified. I love how the people of God are identified as what? These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. It's this thought like, hey, Paul and Silas, they didn't get to do ministry there for very long, but already the church is booming there in Thessalonica. It's getting turned upside down, that world for the name of Jesus. I teach a lot more about this, about the church in Thessalonica and about you know all of the, I'm talking about here in the message, the unknown God. And then I talk about a lot about Timothy, because remember it's Silas and Timothy now that are coming with the financial gift and they go back and they're, they're mentoring, they're discipling the church there in Thessalonica. I talk a lot more about Timothy's ministry and his travels that happen outside of when he's with Paul in the extension following Jesus. So when Silas and Timothy arrive with the good news about how the church was doing in Thessalonica, Paul's like immediately, I need to write them a letter. That's some good stuff, but I need to write, I need to write to them. I need to tell, I mean, encourage them, I need to challenge them, I need to learn from the spirit what needs to be said to them. So while Paul's there in Corinth writing 1 Corinthians, I'm uh, sorry, 1 um, Thessalonians, he writes it to them. He waits, he's doing ministry, he's you know going full time. They write then back to him a letter, and then he writes 2 Corinthians and writes the second one. So when you look in your Bible and you see first and second, sorry, I said Corinthians. Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians. He's writing that while he's in Corinth. That's why I kept saying that. It can get confusing, right? So it's not until five years later, four or five years later, he writes first and second Corinthians back to the church at Corinth. But while he's in Corinth, he writes after he and the report from, sec, uh, from Silas and Timothy, he writes first and second Thessalonians. But he didn't write this alone. Remember, Silas and Timothy, they were there knowing what's really going on with the church. So let's look at this. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse one, they write it to this church. It's only six months old at this time. It's a brand new church. And it says it's not written by just Paul, but it's written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They all co-authored this letter together to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. So all three of them wrote the letter because Silas and Timothy, they really had the deets on what was happening in Thessalonica. So now that Paul's received this financial gift, he's ready to get it. 
He's, he's preaching more. He's going after it. Obviously, he's in the synagogue and doing all that. But it says in verse 6, but when they opposed Paul, remember? This happens everywhere. I don't know why we even like consider this to be like a big deal. When they opposed Paul and became abusive, he's like, okay, I'm done with this then. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. For now, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is different. He's like, okay, I'm done with y'all then. I'm going to exclusively go and preach to the Gentiles while I'm in Corinth. Why? Paul wanted his time to be fruitful. He wanted to make sure that if he was preaching, he wasn't just banging his head against the wall with opposition. He wanted the gospel to bear fruit. Can I tell you, there isn't just one place, the synagogue, that we preach. There isn't just one people, the Jews, that we preach to. You'll realize very quickly, quickly that you don't need to go far to find somebody that is in need of hearing the good news of Jesus. Hence, verse 7. He's kicked out. So it says then, Paul left the synagogue. And what did he do? Look at this. Went next door. He didn't have to go far. He went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Paul literally walks right out of the synagogue, right next door to the house of a Gentile man. He literally goes, okay, you gonna make this hard on me? I don't know, he's, I don't know how he did it. Shake, 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 shake. I don't know what he did exactly. He shakes his clothes and he's like, I'm gonna preach to the Gentiles. He go next, goes next door to where? A Gentile man's house. He goes, goes and does exactly what he said. He comes here to the house of Titius Justice, and Luke describes him as a worshiper of God. There's three categories that would have defined a worshiper of God. Titius Justice is in the third category. Category one would be you're born a Jew. So obviously you're going to worship Jehovah in that case. Category two would be you're born a Gentile, but you decide to fully convert to Judaism and worship God in every way you convert. Circumcision, everything you convert. Or category three, that's Titius Justice here. You become a God worshiper, another way that's referred to as a God fearer. In Acts chapter 10, I referred to this. In the message, Gateway to God, there is Cornelius, right? He is the, a Roman centurion. He's referred to as a God fearer in scripture, meaning he's a Gentile, but he worshiped the, the, the God that the Jews worshiped, Jehovah, Yahweh. We'd call him now as Christians, God the Father. He was not yet a Christian until Peter came and preached him in Acts 10. He falls on his knees. Next thing you know, Peter's preaching. They're all speaking in tongues before Peter can even finish. He baptizes all of them. It's an amazing story in Acts 10. That's all in the message gateway to God. But the same type of thing is happening here with Titius Justice. He's a God worshiper, a God fearer that Paul comes to his house. As soon as Paul makes the decision to focus on preaching to the Gentiles, he has this opportunity. Immediately, Titius Justice is there, and he brings him into his home. What's amazing past that? is more miracles always just keep taking place. When you, when you stay faithful to what God tells you to do, when you stay faithful to what you commit to, Paul goes, fine, I'm preaching to the Gentiles then. As soon as he did that, look how doors start flinging wide open. Verse eight, Crispus, the synagogue leader and his entire household believed in the Lord. Right off of that. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Are you catching this? Paul leaves the synagogue. He makes this statement. Fine, I'm just going to preach to the Gentiles then. As soon as he exits, he goes to a Gentile's house. But what happens? Somebody that was there in that synagogue is listening. Shoot. Did I miss it? Was I being too hard? Like, what's happening? What is this conviction I'm feeling inside of my chest right now? He didn't know it yet, but from the Holy Spirit. 
Are you catching this? Crispus, the synagogue leader, there in the synagogue, is watching Paul walk out. And there's something drawing him, stirring him. What's going on? What am I feeling? He then goes into Titius Justice's house in this, this, this moment right here. He gives his life to Jesus, not just him, but his whole household. He's the synagogue leader, and he gives his heart to Jesus. His whole family gives their heart to Jesus, and then many people there in Corinth start giving their life to Jesus just because Paul was willing to shake off the dust and walk and do what God told him to do. And here's what's amazing with Crispus. It only takes a match to start a fire because this man, Crispus, the synagogue leader, was willing to walk out of that synagogue and follow Paul, therefore follow Jesus. Corinth starts catching fire. God starts moving in extraordinary ways in this area because of the conversion of Crispus. And you know how you know the conversion's real? Because later, Paul writes about it. Remember, this is, this is in 1 Corinthians, about four years later at this point, four or five years, 1st, 2nd Corinthians are written that timeline together, right? Later, Paul writes about the fact that he baptizes him. And he only baptized a few people that he says, look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except who? Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. It ain't about me, it's about Jesus, he's saying. Yes, uh, he's like, yeah, I know. I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember I, I baptized anyone else. He's like, listen, I didn't baptize many people, but he lists here who? the synagogue leader there in Corinth in Acts 18, Crispus. So as Acts 18 uh, keeps moving here, it comes to verse nine after this whole kind of uh, amazing moment. And it just changes pace a little bit. It takes like a big breath. And as always, Luke gives us foreshadowing. Something else is coming. Like there's a, re he's like, when I come to verse nine now, I'm a change the tone a little bit. I'm going to show you something here that took place. And Luke is showing us, the reason I want to show you this is because it's always going to be foreshadowing that something else is about to take place. Look at verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. He's telling him again, I just want you to know, I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Oh, this is awesome. Typically, I would hear that Paul's about to have a vision. I'm like, oh, something bad about to happen. He about to get beat up. He about to be in chains. It's about to be something because every time the Holy Spirit shows up, he shows up to warn them, you're about to go through something hard. There is going to be a hard ship. You're about to get in a boat that is hard, it's a hardship. And you're about to go through something real difficult that's about to rock your world, but that's not what it says here. It says here that the Lord shows up and encourages him, keep going strong, keep going. I'm for you, I'm with you. I love this vision. I love it for two reasons. One, God always knows what you need when you need it. Nobody knows like him. He knows exactly what you need to hear. You're like, man, I went through a hard day. Yeah, he knows that that, that was going to spur you, challenge you in a way that a great day wouldn't. Other day times, it's like, man, I had a great day. He knows you needed an uplifting day. Somebody rebukes you or confronts you. He knows you needed that correction. Somebody encouraged you. He knows that you needed that. You open up the scripture and you, you read it. And you're like, oh, wow, that just hit me just right. You read it the next day. Oh, I hate that. He knows what you need when you need it. I just love that about Jesus. This is Paul. Case in point, Acts 18, verses 9 to 10. God knows what he needs when he needs it. You know the second thing I love about this, though? It's very clear here. 
the Lord reveals to us in what he says that Paul is battling fear. How do we know that? He says, do not be afraid. If he knows what he needs when he needs it, why would he tell him not to be afraid unless he was afraid? I love this because it shows us that Paul isn't Superman. He struggles just like every single one of us. He battles emotions. And it shows us we're not stupid. We're not alone. We're not completely messed up if we're feeling doubt or worry or fear. If we're going through a day where we're just battling and we're just like, oh man, I'm afraid. So was Paul at some point. Why else would Jesus tell him not to be unless he was? And I love that it kind of opens this veil even more. Obviously, he's human, but sometimes he feels superhuman, doesn't he? On his humanity, Jesus showing us even Paul is afraid. I love in the NASB. And the Lord said to Paul by a vision at night, do not be afraid. And I love what it says, any longer. It not only shows us that he was afraid, but it also shows us this phrase, these two words, do not be afraid any longer. What is Jesus saying? Fear stops here. That's a word for somebody right now. Don't be afraid any longer. I know you have been. I know you've been worried, discouraged, afraid, anxious, whatever it's been, but not any longer. Come on. Fear stops here. He speaks to Paul's soul in such a deep way that this stuck with him. Why do you think at the end of his life, after he experienced so much more hardship, so many moments where he should be afraid, so many times where he was in chains, yet what does he say near the end of his life? He writes to his spiritual son, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1.7, and he says, listen, Timothy, keep going, buddy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Somebody can't write that unless he had battled and gone through it and known what it was like to have fear. You cannot understand what it's like to press past that emotion unless you've experienced that emotion. He's like, Timothy, I know what it's like, man. I've been there. I remember he, he, he maybe he like snuck some extra thoughts to me. He's like, listen, I know what it was like when I was in Acts. It was Acts 18. I'm in Corinth and the, 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 the Lord Jesus showed up in a vision to me. He's like, listen, don't be afraid. And it rejuvenated my soul. And so now, Timothy, I speak to you and I say, listen, let the Holy Spirit rejuvenate your soul because he has not given us a spirit of fear. What kind of spirit has he given us? Power, love, sound mind. God knew. Why did he say? He said uh, in that vision, he goes, there are many people in this city. What does he mean? Keep pressing. Keep preaching. There's a lot of people that need to be reached. The harvest is ripe for the picking. So be strong and courageous. The kind of message he'd give Joshua. Paul, keep going. Stretch yourself. Keep pressing. Go for the long haul because there's a lot of people in Corinth. And I'll tell you, he did. He went for the long haul. Verse 11 tells us, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of the Lord. Up to this point, this was the longest that Paul had ever stayed in any city on any missionary journey up until this point. Of the three years, because right now he's in his second missionary journey, of the three years that he spends in his second missionary journey, half of that is spent in Corinth. Think about that. He reaches all these different churches in Macedonia, and he, it, his time with them compared to Corinth, it failed in comparison. 
which is why continually the Bible shows he keeps going back and forth through Macedonia. Why? He kept checking on them, or he'd send his traveling companions, he'd send Silas and Timothy and different ones to go check why, in his absence why he couldn't be there to go check on the minister because he didn't spend a lot of time there. But in Corinth, he spends a lot of time ministering. And the beauty of his time in Corinth is that he reaches such an eclectic group of people. Look at the vast array of people that he reaches. From the religious ones like Crispus, right, the leader of the synagogue, all the way to the thieves, the drunkards, the sexually immoral, slanderers, swindlers, the adulterers, the homosexual, and adulterers. They're all listed in 1 Corinthians 6. I'm literally just like picking them out of 1 Corinthians 6. He writes back to the church about them. Why does he write, don't be like them? Because that's the kind of people that he was reaching. And he's telling them, listen, you used to be like these kind of people, but you can't be like them anymore. Like we're an eclectic group that now calls ourselves a singular vision of we are Christians. This is now Christianity. We can't be living like that anymore. And so you see how he's reaching all these different types of people. Even he really, he reached like city officials like Erastus. He mentions him finally in Romans chapter 16. He refers to Erastus, who is the city treasurer of Corinth. It's amazing all the different types of people that Paul was reaching because he was faithful. He stayed there for a year and a half. And he was faithful. It was all these different pieces. Silas and Timothy bringing a financial gift. He was more than willing to use his hands and make tents. But then once he got that, that piece unlocked the ability to preach the devil's pants off, go in there, reach every single person. Everybody needs Jesus. I'm not just exclusive to Jews. He goes, I'm going after the Gentiles now. I'm not just exclusive to the synagogue. I'm going to be in Titius's Justice's house. I'm going to like be reaching anybody. Again. Oh, Crispus, yeah, are you homosexual? Yep, yeah, you drunkard? Yep, yeah, you thief? Yeah, you. I'm going to reach everybody for Jesus. And he does it with all he has for a year and a half straight. Now, I want to end this extension with just this last number of verses, verses 12 to 17, because I think that as we dissect this, it's amazing to see what, what God gave to Paul in a vision of verse 9, to see how he fulfills it. Always, God fulfills everything with faithfulness. God was faithful to what he told him in verse 9. So although Paul often... <laughs> always. I mean, if you read all the chapters of Acts, he's dealing with violence and he's dealing with torture from mobs, all of that. God had a specific plan in mind. He had a different kind of outcome of what Paul was going to be up to while he was in Corinth. So as it came to pass, just as God promised, he said, what? No one is going to attack and harm you. We're seeing the ability now, my point is, starting at verse 12, for that to happen. Yet if God said it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. The reason I set this up, because any other time that this setup is about to happen, he was always getting the snot kicked out of him. He was always in chains. He was always going through hardship. But God said it wouldn't this time. And I just want to tell you, if God makes a promise, it's prophetic. What he says is going to happen. So look at verse 12. While Galileo was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. Dun, 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 judgment. Okay, I thought you said nothing bad's gonna happen. And furthermore, what the heck here? Made a united attack? I thought you just said that Jesus said that no one is going to attack or harm you. Well, read it in other translations here. It's not meaning a physical attack. The NIV just words it that way, that there's a united attack, but it wasn't being physically attacked. It was meaning they were united and rising up against him. They were opposing him, and they were going to bring him now into judgment before Galileo, the pro-council. As always, who is it? The Jews 
always, always, in this case though, rather than beating him up like in other times, they're going to go through the proper, channel, proper channels and bring him before the pro council. The pro council, I've talked about this, this before, but I just want to keep helping under, you understand in each extension. That would have been like the governor of the province in an in a ancient, ancient Rome. So the pro council would have served like a year to sometimes rarely two years in office. In this case, right, the province we're talking about is Achaia, remember? That's the, the, the lower half, the southern half of Greece. And the proconsul in this case, like the governor, right, that is Galileo. So there's a lot of history, actually, I want you to understand, that is surrounding this person, Galileo. So he's actually important to reference a little bit because the history of him helps create now what we call the historicity of the book of Acts, meaning historically it's proving the authenticity historical authenticity of the book of Acts, that what it says, what Luke wrote, it is proven, it can be taken to the bank, we can trust it. Not only does the Roman historian Tactus, Tacitus, and his writings help prove it, but also there was a letter discovered from Emperor Claudius that he sent to the ancient city of Delphi. Now, Delphi was located six miles from the coast of Corinth. And what's so cool is in that letter to the city of Delphi, Caesar, right, Emperor Claudius, who does he reference? Galileo. He references Galileo as the proconsul. So based upon the date of that letter and the date of when Paul came to Corinth, we can understand that as we're reading this in Acts 18, so we're looking, okay, Galileo is made the proconsul, Emperor Claudius writes the letter, Paul comes to Corinth, we can understand that in the summer of 51 AD, this trial is all taking place. The Jews knew this. So what they decided to do is understand that Galileo is the new kid on the block. He's the noob. They're going to, quickly as possible, hop on that, thinking they can get him in their corner and they can get rid of Paul as soon as possible. Well, this is how the exchange took place between Galileo and the Jews. Look at verses 13 to 16. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak. Let me, let me just stop there, actually. Uh, can you relate to this? Just as Paul was about to speak. You ever been about to open your mouth and then something happens or someone else talks before you get to? And then after that, something happens or somebody speaks, you're like, thank God that I didn't say anything. I thank the Lord God Almighty I didn't say what I was about to say because if I had, I would have made it 1,000 million trillion times, zillion times worse, but I didn't speak. And this all worked out. You remember Jesus said that no one is going to attack you or harm you? Paul didn't need to open his mouth. He got a little ahead of himself and the Holy Spirit saved him. I love those Holy Spirit moments. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for not letting me talk because talking would have made it so much worse. He didn't need to defend himself. Jesus said, listen, I'm with you. I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna protect you. I'm gonna defend you. You will not be attacked and no harm will come to you. So Paul was about to speak. It says then though, Galileo said to them, if you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, he's like, shit, bunch of crap I don't even understand. Settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. 
Thank you, Galileo. Finally, somebody doing it the right way. This is amazing. No other governor does this. Every other time that Paul stands before somebody who's bringing judgment on him, every time they always side with the Jews, every time. This is the only one recorded here that finally takes his side. You can read about this. You start reading like Acts 23 to Acts 26. You look at Felix and Festus, the governors there at that time, there in Caesarea. They're always taking the Jews' side every time. Then King Nebuchadnezzar II rose up, rolls up, and he's like, rum, rum, rum. And they're all, it's, it's so annoying. And literally, Paul's just getting the snot kicked out of him, not even physically all the time, but even with the words and the false accusations. And he just, just like Jesus, he stands there and takes it. And oh, Holy Spirit, thank you for self-control. Holy Spirit, thank you for helping us handle when people are saying the dumbest things on planet Earth. And we just sometimes have to keep our mouth shut and take it. And sometimes somebody else will speak up and the Lord will defend in that way. Other times the Lord will allow us to go through things because he is defending us in a different way and bringing the gospel forth in a way that we might not love how it has to go forward, but it must go forward. Thank you though, Galileo, finally, for doing something. Because the other trials, I mean, you, they're all found in the description, all the different trials I'm talking about from Acts 23 to 26 before Felix and Festus. Uh, you can learn more about those uh, by watching those extensions, those messages. But finally, right here in Acts 18, somebody has some common sense. All the way to the point, look at verse 17. Then the crowd, <laughs> like, Galileo's like, I ain't listening to this stuff. This is nonsense. So then the crowd, there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galileo showed no concern, whatever. <laughs> I love it. He's just sitting there like, I don't care. Don't care. Wait, I read that right. Turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader. Wait. I thought Crispus was the synagogue leader. Isn't that what we just read? Am I, am I seeing? I thought Christus. Crispus was the synagogue leader. Now it's saying that Sosthenes is the synagogue leader? This is so sweet. See, after the Jews drove out Paul of the synagogue, remember earlier in verse 6, he goes to the house of Titius Justus. Next thing you know, then Crispus and his whole family and a bunch of all the people there in Corinth are coming to know Jesus. Crispus was the synagogue leader, but he walked out and he left and followed Jesus. Let's just talk about it again and remember the fact that sometimes people in high places are willing to walk out on it and take on low places to follow Jesus. That it ain't about popularity, it's not about fame, it's not about money, it's not about status, it's about Jesus. And they're willing to walk out and follow Jesus. So what happens? They gotta replace that position. So Sosthenes becomes the replacement being the synagogue leader. He wasn't just the synagogue leader though, he's the one leading this mob that wants to take Paul out. Very quickly, Sosthenes goes from being, though, the leader to the bleeder. Very quickly, he's leading the mob to getting the snot kicked out of him by the mob. I mean, they're beating him to a pulp here. We're reading here in Acts 18. What happens? Galileo just stands there and lets it happen. Rather than motioning to the guards, think about this. This happens in other chapters of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20, Paul's getting beat up. And it says here, then Claudius Lysias sends some soldiers, right, later to be like, hurry up and get him, save him. Uh, you know, that, sorry, that's in Acts chapter 21. Go get him, save him, get him out of there. They bring him in the barracks there. Yeah, that's not what happened here. Galileo just stands there. 
the guards are going to say, nope, let it happen. Let's the snot get kicked out of him. Why? Because he wants to make a point. Listen, I might be new on the block. It's kind of like uh, in prison, they tell you or whatever, or like the reset, like the playground at recess, go up and punch the biggest bully in the schnoz and just give him just a beat down in the nose. Punch him and be like, I'm here, don't mess with me. That's like the old thought, right? In prison, you punch him, show him like you're nobody to be trifled with, that's Galileo. I might be new, but don't mess with me. Don't waste my time. Why are you bringing trivial matters to my attention when I'm actually here to judge real matters and serious crimes that need my attention and you're bringing all this pity party stuff to, to me that you just don't like? Well, get over yourself. So he literally lets them just beat the pulp out of the orange juice of Sosthenes so that there's a point made, I will never let this happen again. It ends that, ends that section, right, that verse. And Galileo showed no concern, whatever. You know what makes this special though? Oh, this is so cool. I'm like talking about how cool it is before I talk about it because I, I, I truly, before it even comes out of my mouth, in my brain, I'm triggering all the things I'm about to say. And I just am obsessed with how Jesus can turn people's lives around. I have watched in my whole life how the most broken, the most pathetic, the most disturbed of people become hardcore addicted to Jesus kind of followers. That's what happens here. What makes this moment special in Acts 18 is not the fact that Paul was untouched by the mob. That's cool. It's not even the fact that Jesus said he would be unharmed and he was not harmed. Just as Jesus said, it came to pass. That's cool too. But if you read later, when Paul writes his first letter to the church here in Corinth, like I said, right, like 1 Corinthians is like four or five years, 2 Corinthians is five years later, you'll find that he's not the only one who authors the letter. There was someone else who helped him author the letter. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look how it starts. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, who else writes the letter with him? And our brother, Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, what is he saying? To those sanctified. To those that used to be thieves and used to be drunkards and used to be homosexuals and used to be sexually immoral and idolaters and swindlers and, and, and slanderers who used to be. But he says, now to those sanctified, but you've been changed, sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all of those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wait, who co-authored co co this letter? Not just Paul the apostle, but also he called him our brother, Sosthenes. It's not with 100% certainty, but according to church history and what a lot of scholars would break down, yeah, the same Sosthenes who was the leader of the synagogue, who was the leader of the mob, who was the one getting the junk kicked out of him, recognized the life of Paul, the story of Jesus, and he turns his life around and he actually then goes with Paul from this moment in this, Ro this Roman court in Corinth that he follows him then into Ephesus and he assists him while they're in Ephesus in writing this letter of 1 Corinthians. Just like Paul 
Sosthenes could relate. He knew it was like to be betrayed and brutalized by your own people. He knew it was like to be turned on now. He was the one doing it to Paul. But then it reversed and it happened to him. Galia was just sitting there letting it happen. And he knew what it was like to be turned on. And then now, Sosthenes with Paul, they are spinning the story for God's glory. They were taking, for me, it's become now in ministry a tale as old as time. The ability I see in people that somebody's once lost, but they become found, the old hymn, blind, but now they see. They begin to spin that together with 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because remember, Sosthenes, he had influence in Corinth. Even though he got the snot kicked out of him, people knew who he was. So if he starts writing this, whether they like him for it or not, because people didn't like Paul for it, but Paul had influence. Because remember, once he was a Pharisee, he said, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, is now writing this 1 Corinthians. They choose to spin the story. I just love that. Because I just think there's people even listening right now that you're forgetting that where you came from, that's not who you are anymore once you say yes to Jesus. So spend the story. Some of you are like, but you don't know what I'm doing right now. Spend the story. Choose to say, I'm not going to live like this anymore. As it's written here in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to choose to be sanctified. Not a robber as it says, not a homosexual, as it says, not an idolater, as it says, or an immoral person, as it, it gives so many different descriptions. In fact, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God, it says in 1 Corinthians 6. I'm not going to be that. I'm going to spend the story. I'm going to become, as Paul wrote, the righteousness of God. I'm going to choose to be sanctified. I'm going to choose to be holy and set apart. How do you choose to be that? You can't do anything to get that. You can't do anything to earn that. Yes, faith without works is dead. It's, it's, but it's not works without faith. It's faith without works. Meaning it all starts with a faith in Jesus that allows you to spin the story, turn it around for God's glory. So now you begin to act like you're sanctified. Act like you're holy. Act like you're somebody brand new in Jesus. Yes, we're not yet where we want to be, but let's just say right now in the name of Jesus, we're not where we used to be. Be like, but I am right now in that place. I'm, I'm smoking weed. I'm sleeping around. I'm lying, cheating, stealing. I'm looking at stuff I shouldn't. Spin the story. You don't have to be. You get to be like Jesus. You get to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You get to be just like Paul. You get to be, look at this, just like Sosthenes. Once they're leading a revolt against the follower of Jesus, then now you are the follower of Jesus that probably people are going to want to lead revolt against you. But isn't it powerful? Isn't it powerful that you're living in such a way acknowledging Jesus that you won't be denied before the Father? Isn't it powerful? Yet yeah, some people might turn against you. Some people not, might not like you for it, but I would rather be disliked by the world and liked by Jesus I'd rather be turned on by the world, but not be turned on. Well, I got to stand there at the point of, of judgment and there's the father. And the only body getting me into those pearly gates is Jesus. 
I will not deny him before man because I know I'll be denied before the Father. But Jesus said, if you'll acknowledge me, you'll be acknowledged. Spend the story. Do it right now. 180, 100% change. I don't think it's that simple. Yes, it is. I'm gonna do something different right now. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer of salvation. I've never done this in any other extension that I've done. But as I pray for you, if you're right now needing to spend the story and give your life to Jesus Christ and just complete a 180 for him, just like Sosthenes did, then I want you to repeat this with me. And as you do, right now, change is coming in the name of Jesus. And when I say change, I ain't talking like about pennies and dimes and nickels and quarters. I'm talking about like a millionaire kind of change a literally rags to riches kind of story. I'm not talking about like prosperity is coming your way and you're going to make a ton. That's stupid. We don't live our life for that. I'm talking about rags to riches kind of blessing, a blessing where now your life and your story and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, the Bible says, that heaven awaits you, that Jesus is your reward and he's going to give you his best. So if you want to receive Jesus, it's very simple. Confess with your mouth that he's Lord. Believe in your heart. He raised from the dead and you will be saved. You will be changed. Pray with me, would you? Let's spend the story. Say, Jesus, I confess right now that I've sinned. I might be in any one of these categories, a thief, homosexual. I might be somebody defined as a swindler or a slanderer, a gossip, a liar, a cheater, a stealer a whole lot of different people. But now, Jesus, I ask that you'd forgive me. Come into my heart and my soul all of my life. I give you my mind, my hands. I am yours and you are mine. Thank you for your blood that you shed on the cross and thank you for the resurrection power that is the empty tomb that is now that life and power inside of me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord. And I believe right now, as it says in 1 Corinthians, that I'm sanctified and holy. And I am the righteousness of God. I choose today to spend the story and to give you glory with all that I have and all that I will have. As you bless me, let me be a blessing for your glory. Jesus, keep us dangerous. In your awesome and powerful name. Amen. I love y'all.